Hey, let's open our Bibles tonight to uh, 1 Chronicles. And Lord willing, we're going to look at chapters 14 and 15 tonight. Now, something interesting about the way uh, these three chapters, 13, 14, that we're going to look at tonight, and 15, is that they're not necessarily in chronological order. If you remember, when we were going through the book of Samuel and also in First and Second Kings, and especially in Samuel, uh, things weren't necessarily chronological. And the same is true for Chronicles. There are some things that are out of order, and it's not that they're out of order. It's just that the person, the chronicler, we think is Ezra, the scribe actually, uh, had these, put these things in, in different places for a reason. And I, I honestly don't know the reason that this chapter would be placed in between chapter 13 and chapter 15. There, there's many reasons why that could be. I don't really have a, a firm idea of why that is. But remember, when we were in chapter 13, we looked at um, David's first attempt at bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and how it failed miserably. It failed miserably because, remember, the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen from the, the Israelites, and the Ark of the Covenant was really like the very uh, symbolic, if you will, of the very presence of God with his people. And, and, and remember, inside the Ark of the Covenant was the, the two stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. And the children of Israel, unfortunately, after they came into the land, they began to treat the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky charm, if you will. And if you remember also, they went into a war with the Philistines up in Aphek, which is a city up in the northern part of Israel. And they lost terribly because they thought that the Ark itself, being in the war with them, would somehow grant them victory. And of course, we know that God doesn't do those kinds of things. In other words, God is more concerned about what we think of him rather than what we think of a box that he has blessed the children of Israel with. Follow me? Because it's all about him. It's not, about, it's not the box. It's not even contained what's contained in the box. It's the God of the box, right? That's who we're to worship, and that's what it was all about. But the children of Israel had gotten so focused on the box that they forgot about the God of the box, because it's the God of the ark that saves them, that, that saved them from their battles. And so, um, so remember, it, it came, into, uh, came into the enemy's hands, into the Philistines' hands, and if you remember, they sent it through uh, many of their Philistine cities, and many people broke out in plagues, uh, the Philistines, who are the um, idolaters, these were people whom God had allowed the children of Israel to displace because of their idolatry, because of their horrible practices, horrible, despicable, sinful things that these, these people did. And God gave them space for a few hundred years to repent, to turn from that idolatry, and they did not. And so God allowed his people to come in and displace them and to destroy them. And some of them... Uh, Israel didn't finish the job. They, they allowed uh, things to linger, and it created problems for them later on. And we're seeing the result of that right now as we look at this, because this was right in the very beginning when Israel became a nation. When they came into the Promised Land, Joshua had settled them, and they were supposed to go in and take over the land and wipe out all the inhabitants. But they didn't do that. And so 
now they have this problem with the Philistines. But the Philistines stole the ark from the Jews. And the ark goes on this tour, if you will, an involuntary tour of Philistine cities. And um, finally, they're like, we got to get rid of this box, this, this box of God. That's <laughs> what they thought it was. And so they tried to get rid of it. And finally, it finds itself in the uh, hands of, um, of a gentleman in kirjath Jerim. And it stayed there for over a hundred years, actually. And then David, remember in chapter 13, he goes up to Kirjath-Jerim after a hundred years of the ark being separated from the tabernacle. David has it in his heart to bring it to him into Jerusalem, into the capital of, the, of, of their nation. And remember, because he saw how the Philistines had brought the ark and how they sent out the ark, it was on a cart. And it was driven by oxen. And so the Philistines or the Jews thought, well, even though we know better... <laughs> We saw them do it. Why can't we do it? It's a lot quicker. It'll get the job done a lot quicker. So they're thinking the ends justify the means. So what do they do? They put it on a new cart, just like the Philistines did. But what is the difference between the Philistines and the Jews? The Jews knew better. And God allowed the Philistines. Actually, he didn't allow them to get away with it because they broke out in plagues all everywhere the ark went. But now the children of Israel, knowing that, they, that this ark should not have been placed on a cart and brought into Jerusalem, it was supposed to be held on the shoulders of the Levites. Held on the shoulders of the Levites to be brought in. And they disobeyed God. And remember Uzzah, when they were driving the cart into Jerusalem, and this was David's, King David's first attempt to bring it into Jerusalem, that the oxen stumbled and the cart, or the ark nearly fell off the cart and Uzzah put his hand to steady the ark and he wasn't even supposed to touch the thing and God struck him dead. And so what they did is they took the ark, David was frustrated, he thought he was doing this great thing, so now they take the ark of the covenant and they set it in the house of Obed-Edom and it's there for three months and David all the while is musing, what did we do wrong? And then finally it comes to him. And we're going to see the result of that in chapter 15. But before we get to chapter 15, let's look at chapter 14. This, this chapter uh, is really, um, chronologically, this, the events of chapter 14 actually occurred earlier in David's reign. But let's go ahead and read it. Notice what it says. It says, Now Hiram... And uh, it says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters to build him a house. And so David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. And then David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David begot more sons and daughters, and these are the names of his children whom he had in Jerusalem, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Epilet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishima, uh, Bealiada, and Ephelet. Now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it, and he went out against them. And then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Rephaim, 
And David inquired of God, and we're going to spend a few moments when we get here. David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to him, Go up, for I will deliver them into your hand. And so they went up to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. Then David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a breakthrough of water. Therefore they called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And when they left their gods there, David gave a commandment, and they burned them with fire, meaning the idols were burned with fire. And then the Philistines once again made a raid on the valley, and therefore David inquired again of God, and God said to him, you shall not go up after them. Circle around them and come, the, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees, and it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And so David, notice, this is a, probably one of the most important verses in all of this chapter. So David did as God commanded. <laughs> As God commanded him, he did. And they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. And then the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. And so let's go back and take a look at some things in uh, chapter 14, and then we'll get right into 15. But notice in verse 1, this King Hiram um, was a gentleman that David evidently had uh, an affinity with, had a friendship with. Now, the king of Tyre is this area north of Israel and what you and I would call modern-day Lebanon and, and maybe even parts of Syria, but more likely Lebanon. This is where Tyre, uh, you'll notice on most uh, maps of the Middle East or of Israel, there's Tyre and Sidon. Well, Tyre is that area, uh, and he was the king of Tyre, this man, but he noticed something. This Gentile king, this pagan king, recognized that God was doing something in the life of David. He knew instinctively somehow, and obviously it must have been the Spirit of God, breaking through and showing to him that David is my king. And one day, folks, a greater than David is going to be king over all the earth. And what is his name? Jesus. That's right. David's son, but David's Lord, right? And so King Hiram sent messengers to David and cedar trees. The cedar trees up in that part of the, of the country were excellent. And the king of Tyre in Phoenicia, or in that area of what you and I would call um, modern-day Lebanon, they were excellent masons, and they were excellent carpenters. And king, the king of Tyre sent these men with these materials and with this knowledge, with this talent, to help David build himself a house. And so David, notice verse 2, knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and I guess so. Because when even the pagan nations around Israel are waking up to something and helping support what God is going to do, I would say that's a pretty amazing thing, wouldn't you? I mean, it really is. That would be like our government right now saying, you Christians are wonderful. What can we do to help you? Right? Every church should be wide open and, you know, encouraging. I mean, this is kind of like when that happens, you know, God is really at work. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I got to say that with an asterisk. So, notice, for his kingdom, notice, verse 2, was highly exalted, notice, for the sake 
of God's people, Israel. And a royal palace was essential for any king in the Near East. And so David wanted to build himself a house. And I love the humility of this record. Notice what it says. For his kingdom was highly exalted. Why? Because of David only? Was it all about King David? Yes, there were uh, many prophecies in the Old Testament saying that David would come into, onto the throne and he would start the dynasty of Judah and it would be through King David that Jesus would be born because Jesus was born through the Virgin Mary and it would be through Christ or, or, or you know, through, uh, Jesus would, would, would come through the line of David. For, the, for his kingdom was highly exalted. Why? Because of David? No, for the sake of his people. Whose people? God's people. See, as the Jews were God's people, and as Christians, we are God's people too. For those who call him and who love him, they, they are your, we are his people. Because he, I belong to him. If he died for me and saved my, me from my sin and paid the price for the eternal punishment that I deserve, if he did that for me, then wouldn't it stand a reason that I, everything that I am, my whole being, belongs to Jesus? I mean, if he's willing to do it, nobody ever claimed to do that, but Jesus did, right? But for the sake of his people Israel. So the chronicler here, the writer of, the, the, the compiler, if you will, of these records, made it very clear that all David, although David was the king, and certainly very important, that the reason his kingdom was highly exalted was for the sake of God's people. I love that. It's not just about the king, it's about the people. It's about everybody, and see, that's, that's the love of God. He loves people, regardless of who they are. He loves sinners like me. And before I came to Christ, I was one of the worst sinners. Can anybody relate to being a lost sinner? <laughs> All of us should raise our hand, right? We were lost in our sin, on our way to hell. And the Lord saved us. He paid the price, and all we had to do was believe in what he did on the cross. That's all we have to do. But David, notice in verse 3, took more wives in Jerusalem, and David begot more sons and daughters. Now here is, it's very interesting because uh, it was customary, and I'm just going to say this, it was customary in that time of the, uh, of the world in ancient um, Near East uh, for kings to have large harems. It was very customary, although God had specifically prohibited the practice of polygamy. Yes, God prohibited the, 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 the practice of polygamy. One man having many wives or one wife having many men. Uh, I, I don't, I've never seen that before, but many, you know, many wives for a man. God prohibited that. His intention was always for one man and one woman. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it tells us this. And this is God speaking to his people. And, and Moses... Uh, whoever it was at that time, recorded what God had said. He says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses from one of your brethren, you shall set a king over you. And you may not set a foreigner over you. It's got to be a king from, from Judah, of, of someone that God would choose. 
You may not set a foreigner over you, which is not your brother, but he shall not. Notice, here's the, the mandate for a king of Israel. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And here it is. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And so here David is already, and, and, and this is a man whom God has chosen. And God allowed this to, to occur in David's life, although it was against God's will. It was against his will. And these are the names of the children whom he had in Jerusalem. Now, um, it says Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. And then it lists in, chat, in verse 5 there, the others, uh, nine others, or seven others. No, nine others there, excuse me. Now, in First Chronicles chapter 3, in this very book in chapter 3, there's a more complete list of David's sons that are given to us there that not only, uh, not only those that were born in Hebron, but also those who were born to him in Jerusalem. And the only difference between this list that we see here in our text tonight and that of First Chronicles chapter 3 is the mention of Bathsheba. Remember Bathsheba? She was the one whom David had committed adultery with and killed her husband to cover it up. Remember that? And how can God forgive a man who did that? Well, David confessed his sin, and he repented of it, and God forgave him. But did David deserve death for what he did? Absolutely. But God, in his grace and mercy, forgave him, and David was never the same again. He never did those things again. And see, there's the difference. When a person sins and does something horrible like this, if they continue doing it, they're in really serious trouble. But for the person who, in, a, in a, a moment of passion, a moment of weakness, falls into sin, God will forgive them if they confess it. And David did confess it. He confessed his adultery, he confessed his murder, and God forgave him. And so Bathsheba gave to David four children, and they're listed there in chapter 4. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. And Solomon, we know, was the son whom would go on and build the temple after David's decease. So the only difference between this list and what we see in 1 Chronicles 3 is the mention of Bathsheba, uh, that she was the, the mother of these first four sons, and then there's some spelling variations. Remember I talked to you about that before, that when you compare certain portions of Scripture uh, there can be spelling variants, but they're one and the same people. And so a good dictionary, a good commentary will help you figure that out. Even a concordance will help you figure those kinds of things out. So it's not a mistake, it's just a variation in the spelling. So let's go on now to uh, verse 8. And the events recorded here in verses 8 through 17 actually occurred, uh, like I said earlier, earlier in David's reign. So it's a little out of sequence uh, and and we'll, we'll see that in a moment. <clears throat> so notice in verse 8. Now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went to search for David, and David heard of it, and he went out against them. And remember, David, before he became king, he had become confederate with Achish, the king of Gath, who was the king of the Philistines. 
And so this was when he was on the run from Saul. He became confederate with Achish. Uh, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It wasn't David's finest hour by any means. But he found himself running from Saul, who was trying to kill him, and finally finding confederate, uh, being confederate with the enemy of Israel. I mean, that's just lunacy. But that's how David wasn't in his right mind at that time. And, and you know, you try being hunted down and, and the things that you'll do when you're desperate. And I'm not condoning what David did here, neither does the scripture. But when you're hunted and your life is but a hand breadth or a, a breath of a hair away, you may find yourself doing some things that you wouldn't normally do as a man of faith or a woman of faith. And David's faith at that time wasn't completely molded and shaped yet. God was continuing to do that. But the Philistines now knew that David was not their confederate. Because the king of Achish told him, you've got to leave uh, none of the other guys here in the Philistine camp. They don't want anything to do with you, David. And you've been good to me, but I've got to send you out. And so he did. He sent him out. And now these Philistines are now justified. They were all justified in getting David away from them. Because as soon as he became king and they started to attack, he was going to go against them. And he rooted them out, David did. And he had to. God told him to do that. God told the children of Israel to do that hundreds of years prior to this. And David was one of the ones instrumental in actually following through that command. And notice that once David knew they were looking for him, he didn't waste time, but he went out against them in battle. He wasn't a man hiding behind his, uh, behind his desk. He wasn't a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company hiding behind a desk. And not all of them do, but some do. They hide behind their desk and they tell everybody else what to do. David's like, I'm going out into the battle with you. I'm going to go out and meet the enemy. I'm not going to stand by and watch everybody else go out. He was a man's man, David. I love him. He was a great warrior. He was a great king. He was a great example. He was a shepherd and a worshiper of God. What an amazing fellow he was. And notice in verse 9, then the Philistines went and they made a raid on the valley of Rephaim. This valley is actually located, if you were looking at a map of Israel, just southwest of Jerusalem. And notice verse 10. This is so wonderful. And David inquired of God saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Shall I go up to battle? Will you deliver them into my hand? And notice what the Lord said to him, Go up, for I will deliver them into your hand. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. God was very uh, clear with David. David, yes, I want you to go up, and when you go up, you will be victorious. And I don't know about you, but if Almighty God tells me to do something, and he's assured the victory... I want to go, even if my knees are knocking together and I'm scared. Because who wouldn't be scared to go up in a battle? I mean, those battles were ugly. It wasn't like today where, you know, some young person is sitting behind in some kind of NORAD control center with a drone bombing people. No, this was hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was bloody. It was a mess. It was not easy. It was horrifying. Talk about post-traumatic stress afterwards. But David inquired of God, and I love this whole passage from verse 8 down through verse 17, because unlike Saul, remember Israel's first king, David was a man of prayer. 
Notice, re- underline this in verse 10, because you're going to see it again in, uh, in a few more verses. You're going to see him saying the same thing again. He um, inquired of God, but unlike Saul, the Bible doesn't tell us that Saul inquired of God at all. Saul was disobedient. The people wanted Saul. He was tall and blonde and handsome. And God says, I haven't chosen him. In fact, I don't even, why can't I be your king over you, Israel? We'd been doing this for so many hundreds of years. Why now do you want a king over you? And they said, no, we want a king over us, just like all the other nations. And God says, okay. And he gave them what they wanted. And unfortunately, the king that they wanted, Saul, was a miserable disaster. And the scriptures say that. Why? Because he was not obedient. And he wasn't a man of prayer. Unlike David, who was a man of prayer. Because Saul continued to be disobedient when the Lord told him to do very specific things. And there did come a point when God was silent to Saul. God would, would not speak to him. And Saul began to consult a medium. Remember that? He began to consult a witch. A witch. And why was God silent to Saul? One word, disobedience. Disobedience. And David, however, had a vibrant relationship with the Lord, even in spite of his failures. And the Bible is very clear of David's failures. It doesn't sugarcoat what he did at all. It puts it right on full display for all of the universe to see, to learn from. It's here for our nurture and for our admonition, for our learning, isn't it? So David had this uh, a relationship with God uh, in spite of his failures because he was a man of prayer and he humbled himself before God. Saul never did that. But prayer, notice, he inquired of God. Prayer is an essential part of the Christian life. If you haven't developed a life of prayer, I would encourage you to do that. It's so important. It's, it's, uh, we pray to, to God to communicate with him our own heart, what we're going through. Pour your heart out to God. Don't be afraid to tell him everything and anything. He can handle it. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows you more than you know you. He knows me better than I think I know myself. And so I can't give him any new information. So it's, it's, it always behooves me to just come before him and say, Lord, I messed up again. <laughs> and he's like, Rob, I know. You messed up again. And I say, Lord, forgive me. I, I know it's sin. And he's like, Rob, I forgive you. Not because you're saying the words, but because you've placed your faith in my son. Because you placed your faith in the only one in whom there is salvation, and none other but Jesus Christ. You've put my, your faith in him, and therefore the blood of Christ covers all of your sin, Rob. Not only your sins from the past, your sins in the present, and even your sins yet in the future, I'm going to cover. All you need to do is develop that relationship with me, confess your sin, and just enjoy the fellowship. And happy is the man or woman who does that who prays to God. And God can speak to us through various means. And we see these through the scripture. We don't have time to go into this in great detail, but he speaks to us through his word, the Bible. Yes, through here. God speaks to us through the word of God. As you're struggling with issues and you begin to read, a lot of times the answer will come to you in the word of God, by the the nature of God, the way he does things, the things that he has said. In other words, if I feel like stealing from my employer, the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. 
So the word of God is just save me from stealing. If I'm willing to be obedient, when I want to engage in fornication or I want to engage in drug abuse or whatever it may be, and God warns me and tells me to not do that, he's doing it because if I do it, he has to judge that sin. And left unrepentant, when I take my last breath, I will pay the price for that sin, and I will spend an eternity separated from God. But if I put my faith in Christ, this is what the Bible teaches, you know it. If I put my faith in Him, no longer will I face that judgment. Christ has already faced and paid the price on the cross, and my faith in Him and my trust in Him is the only reason God can say, Rob, you're not gonna, I'm not, I'll never look upon that sin again because you have confessed it and you have pleaded the blood of Christ over that. I'll never look upon it again. What does the scripture say? As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. The east and the west, they never meet. So God speaks to us through his word. He can speak to us in a still small voice in our heart. I've had that happen before. He'll speak to you in that still, small voice. And there's been a handful, uh, only a few times in my life, I'm not kidding, and I can probably count on three fingers how many times God has done this in my, you know, however many years I've been saved now, I forget, 29, 28. An audible voice. He spoke to me audibly. I don't know if anybody else heard it, but it was so audible, it was so clear, it was audible to me. And it was something that I would have never have imagined. And it was a completely against what I was even thinking or would have thought to do. He's done that only a few times. But most of the time, he speaks to me through his word, as he does you. He can speak to you through dreams. We know that Joseph, God spoke to Joseph through dreams. He can speak to you through circumstances, even through others. Somebody may come up and say and share something with you that God put on their heart because you're not listening God may actually speak to somebody else to share it with you. He can do that. But he'd much rather speak to you because he loves you. He wants to speak directly to us. He wants to speak to us through his word. And then all we have to do is be obedient to him. And I can't be obedient to God except being, uh, unless I'm born again. I don't even want to be obedient to God. But now that Jesus is inside my heart, now that I'm born again, I can have, I have that desire to please him. Because after all, if he is who he says he is, and if he did indeed save me from an eternity of spending in hell, but rather an eternity spending with him in glory, I owe him everything. I owe him every single thing. And it's not such a big deal for me to say, Lord, I know that when I sin, it breaks your heart because it separates you from me, and you know that I need you. And he's like, yes, Rob, that's, that's the whole deal. I put these things in place, God says, to make, to, so that you would live, so that you wouldn't hurt yourself, so that you wouldn't harm yourself. So you mean that taking intravenous drugs is bad for me? Yes, it'll probably kill you eventually. So why does God tell, you know, warn us against pharmacia? you know, sorcery, for that reason. He knows it's ultimately going to kill you, and he wants you to live. See, God wants you to live. He loves you. 
He loves you. He wants you to live and have a blessed life, an abundant life. I love what it says in Hebrews, speaking of this David inquiring of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us in verse 6, says, But without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he, God, is a rewarder of what? Those who diligently seek him. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Every time that I have put my heart into searching out God, finding out what he wants, and submitting my heart to him, there's always, always been a reward. And my flesh doesn't always like submitting to God. And especially before I came to Christ, I I resisted it with every breath in me. But now I'm like a willing participant. I'm like that clay on the table. You know, when a potter would stick a clump of clay on that wheel, you know, I'm like that clump of clay now. And I'm like, okay, Lord, do whatever you want. Before, I was trying to get off the table and run away from him. Now I'm like, just do what you want. You have a perfect plan in mind, and I don't have a clue, but you do it, God, because you own me. You are my Savior. You are the one who paid the price for me. I am completely yours, 100%. Do with my life whatever you want. And can I tell you that for 24 years of my life, I had a plan for my life. I was going to be a concert classical guitarist. I had my goal in mind. I was going after the goal. And God changed my heart. I never planned that I would ever be here doing this. If you were to tell me back in 1993 that this would be what I'd be doing for my, you know, this would be my thing that I did... I would have run away from you and probably jumped off a cliff. Lord, anything but that. But can I tell you that when, as a child of God, when you finally surrender your life and God puts you on that wheel, he has the right to shape you. And he's not there to harm you. He doesn't want to take away your fun. He's not there to hurt you at all. In fact, he wants to, he wants to speak peaceably to you. He wants to make you into something beautiful. Your life means something. It's not like aimless and just happenstance. No, there's a purpose behind every single life in this room. And anybody else who would hear on the radio later on, this, God has a plan for you. And it's a beautiful plan. And when you discover his will, oh my goodness, what a joy it is. It really is a joy. I'm happier now than I've ever been. And I've tried everything. I've tried the booze and the, I, I wasn't really hip on drugs so much, but I, I was a real boozer. <laughs> and I was an, uh, an adulterer, a fornicator. Thought I was being free and all I found is myself in more bondage. I found myself feeling guilty. I found myself hurt and broken and I was hurting other people. And God says, are you willing, Rob, to let me take over now? And I'm like, I'm tired, God. I'm tired of this. The wage of sin is is horrible. In James chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And that's David. 
he inquired of the Lord. David sought the heart of God, and he knew, David knew that his success was not based upon his own military prowess. He was a great military man. He was a great warrior. But David knew that it wasn't just because of all of that, and it wasn't based upon his experience, but it was God's providence and God's power working through him. And over and over again, throughout the Bible, we see these things happening in the lives of people. When they are literally at their wit's end. Think of the children of Israel leaving Egypt. And remember, Pharaoh told them finally to get out of Egypt. So they finally do. And they get right there to the Red Sea. And if you you know this place, we believe it's Nueva Beach there in, um, in, in the Sinai Peninsula. They are there before, there's, there's mountains all around, and then there's a pathway going right to the Red Sea, and they're hemmed in. There's nowhere to go. You either got to go across that Red Sea, or you're going to die. <laughs> and Pharaoh and his armies, it tells us in Exodus, were chasing them, and they were all thinking it was done, that they, they were all going to die. And God said, Moses, take your rod and raise it out and stick it out over the water, and just do what I tell you to do. And Moses said, okay. And he did. And the waters parted. And they walked through on dry ground, the Bible says. Yes, miracle of miracles. And then God closed it upon his enemies. Verse 11, so they went up to Baal Perazim, and David defeated the Philistines there, verse 11. And then David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, they called the name of that place Baal Perazim. And when they had left their gods there, David gave a commandment, and they were burned with fire. So David burned the Philistines' idols, because remember, they were an idolatrous people. They worshipped teraphim, these little idols that they would worship. That These were their gods. And God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet they transgressed that. And, and they, rather they would serve a piece of wood or a piece of stone that was carved in the shape of, a, of an animal or some four-footed beast. And God says, why don't you worship me? I'm the one who created all things. I'm the one who spoke all things into existence. The very animals that we have, folks, you can look around, go to the zoo. A turtle is still a turtle. A bobcat is still a bobcat. He created all of them in the very beginning, all according to their kind. There was no evolution. God had spoken, and God meant and said and did what he, because he's a creative genius more than anything. He spoke, and it became so. And it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that one of the things that they were to do when they came into the land, that they were to burn the idols. They were to, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 5, but this you shall deal with them, speaking of the enemies that they go to dispossess. You shall destroy their altars to their false gods and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. Why? And God tells us. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. Notice, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And this is really ironic, isn't it? Because now that the Philistines have been defeated, they're leaving their idols to be burned. And just a hundred years prior to this, roughly, they are the ones who stole the Ark of the Covenant. God has the last word always. He will, and he does. 
And I can say that with arrogance in my voice. And I don't mean that to offend anybody, but I believe that Jesus is God. And the Bible says that. And I believe that Jesus is coming again to this earth. And judgment is coming. That's why he says, come to me and be saved before that judgment. And you'll never see the judgment. Verse 13, then the Philistines, once again, notice they made a raid on the valley. Notice the persistence of the enemy. Even though they were beat once and beat twice, they're or they, they were beat once, they were persistent. They, and the enemy of our souls will never let up. Satan will never give up. He is always trying to harm. That's what, that's what he is. He's a destroyer. He's a deceiver. He's a usurper. And the Christian life, and many of you know this, is not one that is void of battles. It's not one void of battles. In fact, you may find as a Christian that your battles actually intensify. Because now you're aware that there's really a battle. And when you begin to resist the enemy, and the enemy has had his sway over the whole world, the only thing that is not of the enemy is, and when I say the enemy, I mean Satan, the only thing that's not his is those who give their heart to Christ. And when you resist that, before, when I was 24, I didn't resist Satan. I just gave in to whatever he wanted to do. And there was no resistance. There was no battle. I was, I was already a, a wounded in the battle. I, w- I wasn't a big deal. Ah, but once I gave my heart to Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God indwelt me, now I sense the battle because now there is a battle because now I'm resisting the powers of darkness in my own life and all around me. And let me tell you, you find out really quick who you are as a Christian. And you'll sense the battle. The battle will definitely be on. The battle is on, folks. Anybody notice? In the world that we see right now, is that just happenstance? No, there's a battle between worldviews. There's a battle between good and evil, and that's what we see. What does it tell us in Ephesians chapter 6? It tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. That's who we're wrestling against. Against spiritual hosts of witnesses, of wickedness, excuse me, in the heavenly places. So this is not just about some physical battle anymore. Yes, the things that we see physically are a result of the spiritual, not the other way around. If I've got hate in my heart, and it's so great What does it usually result in? Me lashing out to hurt somebody, a people group. What did Hitler do in the 40s? He hated the Jews so greatly, it was a spiritual issue first. And then it began to manifest itself outwardly. And what did it result in? This man's hatred? What did it result in? Six million Jews burned in ovens. That's what it resulted in. So, the spiritual gave birth to the physical. That's the way it always is. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our real enemy is one that we can't see. And thank God that greater is he, the Bible tells us, that is in us, meaning the Holy Spirit if you're a child of God. 
If you're born again, the Spirit of God, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And this is why we need to. What does it tell us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17? It tells us to pray without ceasing. That's what we need to do, pray without ceasing. That's why. And the temptation was certainly there for David to do just what the Lord had said the last time. Do you see? Because now the Lord tells him, um, you know, the, I, I actually, I, I skipped verse 14. Let me read it to you. Therefore, David again inquired of the Lord, and God said to him, You shall not go up after them this time, David, but circle around them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. So the battle plan is completely different now, isn't it? The first time David inquired of God, God says, Go out and meet them head on, right in the valley. And they did so. And they were successful. And not too long after that, the Philistines come again with more armaments, more people, and they set up shop in the same place. And if I were David, I would say to myself, well, it worked the first time. Why don't we just do plan A again? It worked. It was successful. Let's do this again, guys. Just 2.0. And God's going, don't you dare, David. <laughs> and he didn't have to rebuke David because David willingly said, Lord, should I go out? Notice the dependence. You would think that they were gathered in the valley again. Of course, go out and do it. But David had the, the, the discernment of heart to say, Lord, should I go out again? And God's like, yeah, go out again. But not in the same way, David. Don't go out like the first time, but this time, what I want you to do is go around them and set an ambushment behind them. And then, and only then, when you hear the sound of marching in the mulberry trees, this was a spiritual thing that God was doing. He says, when you hear that, then you go out. And David did. And what happened? Was it a wholesale failure? No, it was a wholesale victory. Why? Because David did what God said. Because just because something that we did before worked doesn't mean that we should do it again and expect the same result. And life is filled with variables and twists and turns. So we, as Christians, we need to be flexible and be led by the Spirit of God in everything, in everything, every day. We shouldn't assume anything be prayerful and be discerning and be watchful. This is why the Apostle Paul exhorts us in Galatians. He said this in chapter 5, verse 25, if we live in this spirit, let us also walk in this spirit. You know, Not walking in the spirit would have been David just going into the battle again and doing what he thought was right. But no, he inquired of God again. See, that's the kind of communication that God desires for us, folks, is, is that we would always be communicating to him. He has a way. He can either speak to you through his word. He can speak in your heart. He can speak to you uh, with an audible voice even. God has no, he's not restricted in how he can communicate to you. Let me give you uh, something that's really kind of spooky here, but this is how it works sometimes. You're brushing your teeth in the morning, and you take a little bit of extra time to get those molars way in the back, the wisdom teeth, because your dentist has been howling you. You better brush those back teeth or I've got to yank them out. It's going to hurt real bad, right? So you, you, you take two more seconds, three more seconds just to brush your teeth, and then you go and you get dressed and you get in your car and you go through the intersection, and literally two or three seconds after you pass through the intersection... 
a building collapses right in the intersection. <laughs> what do you think of that? Little things like that. You're just like, oh, maybe I should do that. Well, where did that come from? That wasn't your dentist speaking to you. That was your heavenly father saying, just do, just do this. And you don't even think anything about, oh, okay, yeah, it's probably a good idea. And then your life is spared that day. Think of that. That happens all the time. I'm, we've got cameras all around this church property, this whole, all this building property. And I remember looking at a video one day. Um, there, there was an accident, or a near accident. And um, this person came flying through. And just as they were going through the intersection, right up here in this corner, I'm talk, I don't know how this didn't happen. I looked at the video, and I thought, these cars had to have hit. But one car was going about 80 miles an hour and another car wasn't paying attention. And I'm not kidding. You could have probably put a hair in between those two things. It was so close. And I'm like, couldn't believe it. Do you think God was working? <laughs> and sometimes he allows things like that too. So, but notice, live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, communicate with God, let Him be the Master and the Lord of your life. And it shall be, verse 15, that when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, I love this, then you shall go out to battle. For God has gone uh, out before you. Who's going out before you? Is it David's army with all of their prowess and military uh, expertise? Who's going out before them? God is going out. Do you know that God can create confusion in an army in an instant? The scriptures tell us on a couple of occasions where that happens. He causes great confusion on the enemy, and, and now they turn against one another because they're so freaked out. Who can do that? Only God can do that. And does he do that to help his people at times? You better believe it. He does it for us too. When certain things are going to come down upon us and we're just like, Lord, I need your help. If you don't do something, I'm dead. <laughs> if you don't do something, Lord, I, I'm going to be, they're going to foreclose on my house. And Lord, you know I've worked so hard and I, I need your help. And then $1,100 shows up in an envelope on your doorstep. Has that happened? It's happened to me a few times. And I know that it happens to many others because I've heard people tell me, is God the God of all the earth? Is, is he a God who loves you? Is he a personal God? Yes. He's a very personal God. And in Christ, he loves you dearly. There's no, no longer any more wrath that he has to pour out on you because of our sin, our past sin. It's all came upon his son. That, that, that's the wonderful exchange. That's, that's what it's all about. And it's that easy. Jesus did all the dying for us, and now he wants to live in us. And there's a man in heaven because he rose from the grave, didn't he? One day he's coming back for his bride, the church. So, and it shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall go out to battle. For God has gone out before you, to strike the camp of the Philistines. And notice verse 16. Underline this in your Bible. This is so wonderful. This is critical. So David did as God commanded him. Pretty simple, right? He just did what God told him to do. 
David did as God commanded him, and they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon, which is just a little bit uh, northwest of uh, Jerusalem, as far as Gezer. And so, and here is the recipe for uh, success in the Christian life. What is it? It's obedience, isn't it? It's obedience. We're not going to get to chapter 15 tonight. <laughs> We're going to finish chapter 14, but le- let me read to you a scripture. In fact, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. This was a time when Israel's first king, Saul, was king. And God told him a very specific, very specific thing. He says, Saul, I want you to go out and I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. Every single one of them. Every single thing of theirs. I want you to wipe it out. And you remember, you can read it for yourself in 1 Samuel 15, that Saul did not do that. And this was not the first time that Saul was disobedient to God when God told him to do something very specific. This is at least, I think this is like the third time, at least what's recorded in Scripture, where he completely disobeyed what God had said. And so finally, Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Because Saul, he was supposed to wipe out the animals, the livestock, the people, everything. But remember, Saul saved the good, the good sheep, the good oxen for himself. And then he claimed to be using it to sacrifice to God, right, as, a, as an offering. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Which is more important? He says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or to listen with the idea of doing something than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Notice that. Rebellion or disobedience is as the sin of witchcraft. God doesn't hold one sin to be heavier than the other. Sin is sin. Sin is destructive in our lives, right? For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Wow. So... Did God give Saul many opportunities? We know because we've been through First and Second Samuel. We all know this because we've already read and studied all that, those books. But he gave him many opportunities. God loves to give opportunity to turn. He's not this angry, wrathful God that says, you know, once you cross this line, I'm going to squash you like a bug. No. Oftentimes we step over that line and, he, and, and, and we, we pay, you know, we may pay a price, but he's like, you know, he brings us to repentance, and hopefully we'll confess it, and our relationship with him will be restored. But when I continue to rebel against him, knowing what he has told me already, and I continue to do it, I continue to do it, and I even enjoy doing it, and even enjoy helping other people do it, there comes a point where God says, I have to judge that sin. Let me give you an example, and this is one that's very near and dear to me. Because there's a man who walks up and down the street in my, in my, right in front of me 
whose son had died at 21 years old from heroin, and a heroin overdose. And the father took his son to rehab several times, several times. The son's like, I want to quit, I want to quit. But then he doesn't quit. He just keeps going after it. He keeps going after it. And, and the son would not quit, no matter how much his father begged and pleaded him, son, please. And finally one day, a man gets a call. I'm sorry, Mr. So-and-so, your, your son is dead. We found him with a needle hanging out of his arm. And he died because, granted, there, there is an addiction here, and, and I get that, but his will was he wouldn't stop. He continued, and it, and it killed him. See, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to obey than to say, well, I'm going to do this for the Lord. I'm going to give, yeah, I stole money from the bank, Lord, uh, $10,000 I stole from the bank, but I'm going to give 5000 to the church. Oh, well, that's okay then. No, it's not okay. Give it all. No, just kidding. I'm only kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking, all right? Just a little levity sometimes helps when this serious stuff no, but the ends don't justify the means. He's like, no, you stole that. You need to take it back. And then you're going to pay a price because you broke that law. You're going to go to jail. That's what the law says. And I deserve it if I stole from a bank and I get caught. I deserve to go to jail. Right? But notice verse 17, and we'll end here. Then the fame, then the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of David upon all nations. Because David, God had established David, and it's through David's line, the line of Judah, that the Messiah would be born, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Notice that verse 17 is tied in with verse 16. Look, look at the first couple of words in verse 16 and then look at the first phrase of chapter or verse 17 so 16 tells us david did as god commanded verse 17 then the fame of david went out into all lands there's the reason why david was famous. There's the reason why God prospered David. It was because David did as God commanded. Really simple. To be honest with you, the reason I don't do things that God wants me to do is because I just don't want to do them. I, want, I, I got my own thoughts. I'm learning as I grow older in Christ that when he tells me to do something, I really want to do it. My question is just sometimes hearing him clearly. But once I know it's him, I'm giving in. I'm going to say, Lord, I want to do that too. And he's like, okay. And he even gives me the heart to do it. That's the amazing thing. I've, I love doing the will of God when I'm doing the will of God. <laughs> and my life is miserable when I'm disobedient to him. He would rather that I was obedient rather than a disobedient child. But see, some people aren't even a child of God and they're disobedient. David was a child of God, and he was disobedient. And did God smack him around? Did God take him out to the shed and get, tell him to get the switch on the way there? Did God beat David up? No, he didn't. He told him the truth. And David broke like an egg. He cried 
And he convulsed, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinful man. And God says, David, I forgive you. That is how big forgiveness is. That is the God we serve. He's not some angry, cosmic killjoy that just wants to blast you. No, it's quite the opposite. And yet the world doesn't know that. All they see, and because some people, all they talk about is the judgment of God. And yes, he is a God of judgment, but before he's a God of judgment, he's a great God of love. I deserve judgment if I, if I push him away all my life, I continue to push him away, and then finally I take my last breath, and I deserve what I've got coming to me. But God says, I don't want you. Choose life. Isn't that what he tells the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 30? He goes, I put before you today life and death. Choose life. And by choosing life, we are choosing Christ. We are choosing the author and the finisher of our faith. We are choosing the one, the origin of life, and it's Christ. He created all things. He created you and me. But prayer... And obedience is essential in our walk with the Lord. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this. Um, Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I, I'm just amazed that, Lord, you don't candy coat anything. Lord, you, you tell us the way it is. And, and, and you don't sanitize the life of David. You didn't do that for us, Lord. You, you showed everything and... And Lord, I know that if David were here to stand in front of us all to, to, to say whether he's upset about that or not, he'd probably say, Lord, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you used my life as an example for others, that they might not do the things that I did, that they would not experience the hurt and the pain that I've experienced. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is so awesome. And Lord, we thank you for uh, tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd bless my brothers and sisters, my friends. Lord, I pray that you touch their lives and just speak peaceably to them. As you're doing to me, Lord, speak peaceably to us. Lord, thank you for your love and your grace and just encourage us tonight. Lord, give us a good night's rest and order our steps tomorrow, Lord, that as we walk, Lord, you would just be guiding us even when we are unaware that you're even there. Lord, you care for us and I pray that you would just continue to guide us so we thank you and we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless.